there's always going to be people that want to own that property in the long term. And so it creates a bidding war at the end. You know, we are begging people to buy these things um, right now because it's just not desirable. Uh, and so I learned a lesson, you know, overpay if you have to for quality assets and quality locations, but don't stretch one ounce for mediocre deals in bad locations or don't even buy those. What's going on guys. This is passive wealth strategies for busy professionals. Thank you for tuning in today. Our guest is Josh Satin from Gelt Inc. He is a very experienced multifamily and mobile home park investor who started out as a passive investor. He was a professional athlete. He played in the major league baseball, which is incredible. And today he's going to teach you the top items, the top things you need to look into when you are evaluating a multifamily investment, either as a passive investor or as an active investor. We get into some mistakes he made along the way, so to speak, or some, some things where if he were in today's market, uh, his investments might not have gone quite as well for him until he learned these things, right? So he learned these things and today we're in a different market than when he started and things are gonna continue going well for him. And if you want to succeed in today's market, you need to learn these lessons from an experienced guy like Josh Satin. So if you're looking for passive investments in multifamily and you need to learn how to evaluate them, Josh brings a lot of knowledge in this episode and fantastic experience from 10 years investing in multifamily and I'm sure many more moving forward. I learned a lot today and I'm sure you will as well. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, a real estate syndicator. I buy multifamily properties with passive investors and split the return. Love educating others on this topic. I love getting more educated on this topic because the lessons, the knowledge that you have in your mind can only help propel you forward. And learning from those with experience is just, it's just the best way to do it. You can go so much faster, so much further by learning from the experiences of others. So without any further ado, here we go with Josh Satin. Josh, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Appreciate you having me. So I'm excited to talk with you. We're get, we got a great topic, really important one. Uh, but for the folks out there who don't know what you do, can you tell us about your business and your investing experience? Sure. I, I have an interesting experience. Uh, so uh, my experience in, in real estate started in 2010. Um, in my prior career, I was actually a professional baseball player. I played, played 10 years of, of pro ball mostly for the New York Mets, um, got to the major leagues in 2010, uh, was up and down 2010 to 2014. And, and all the while I was investing passively in real estate, all apartment buildings, all great timing. Obviously the market crashed in 2009. I was very fortunate to get introduced to a couple of different groups. Um, I was young, I was only 25 years old, but I was making some money playing ball. And uh, I had ended up doing about 12 passive investments between 2011 to 2015. You know small check sizes, but they all went really, really well. Uh, and the interesting part is I knew nothing about what we were doing other than the fact that we bought apartment buildings. Didn't know what their strategy was. Didn't know, you know, really anything. But all I knew was that they were doing well and I was making a lot of money. Uh, so flash forward, my career kind of exploded in the wrong way in 2015. And I had to find a new business. And so, you know, I met with about 30 different people in 30 different industries. And the whole time, the only thing that I could come back to was, man, I'm making all this money in real estate. Why don't I just learn to do that? So I met with a couple of the groups I was investing with. 
after five minutes of talking to the first group, I was like, all right, this is it. I'm doing this. I'm finding a way. They introduced me to uh, the current group I work with, Gelt. Uh, at the time, they owned about 2,500, 300 units, 3,000 units. Uh, and in the last five years, uh, we've bought about 6,000. So we're up to about 9,000 units. We've sold a few. I run, I currently run acquisitions. I oversee asset management, um, raise equity. I kind of do a little bit of everything, but my main job is to source, underwrite, tour, offer the new deals. Nice. What markets are you, is your company investing in? Our biggest market is Denver. We own about 3,000 units there. Uh, we own about 1,000 in Salt Lake, another 1,000 in Seattle. And we just bought our second deal in Portland about two weeks ago. We own one deal in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which I'm happy to talk about. I love the market. Wish we would have bought more. Uh, and we own two deals in San Antonio. Cool. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. So in that time you were passively investing before you got into the business, you timed the market very well, as you said, and didn't have, uh, again, as you said, you didn't have particular insight, I suppose, into the business, but the market's different now, right? Yep. It's, we're not in, we don't have uh, quite that amount of, uh, you know, tied behind us or, or what have you, uh, winds, winds at our back. So, you know, people in passive investing and, and even active investing doesn't matter. There are a lot more, I think, mistakes to be made today in picking up any real estate, but particularly uh, multifamily. And that's why, you know, I think we should really focus on our discussion on that today. If you're if you're down to talk about mistakes people make in uh, multifamily. Absolutely. Um, I think I have a, a pretty interesting perspective for people that listen to the show because uh, I I mean, I'm not the only one, but I, I'm one of the rare people that have spent half their investing life as a passive investor, not knowing that much. And then the other half of their investing life, you know, really boots on the ground, understanding the ins and outs of every deal that we do. Uh, and so it, it kind of gives me a perspective of, you know, I knew nothing. So when I'm talking to some of our investors that were similar to me circa 2012, I really know what how simplified you need to get. And then, you know, another side, we have some very, very educated investors in which you got to get more details. So I, I do think that's been a benefit starting as a passive investor for years, you know, especially in dealing with other passive investors. I can see how that would make sense. I mean, that if we're talking about like metrics, one that comes up all the time that most of us use is IRR. And that one's a particularly, it's, it's hard to have like an intuitive feel for, it's not as straightforward as compound growth, annual growth rate or anything like that. But you know, I'd really love to get into some of the things that that folks don't know in passive investing, even successful passive investors, what are they missing out on? Or, or you know, what do they need to, to know? Yeah, I still get a lot of deals sent to me from groups that I used to invest with. And I still do invest with other people. Um, if I see a deal I like, so I look at three things right away. Very simple. I look at their uh, growth assumptions going forward. By that, I mean, rank growth assumptions. I look at their exit cap. And I look at how much they're budgeting for reserves. Three basic things I've learned that I think get overlooked a lot. And I'll start with the last one because this is really near and dear to my heart. It's how much people budget for either CapEx or reserves. And so, you know, when I first got into the business, this is 2015 now, there's a common, you know, nomenclature that you budget 300 a door for our repair and maintenance, 250 for turnover. Contract can be, you know, plus or minus 200 to 500, depending on how 
much land you have, et cetera. And then 250 to $300 a door of, you know, replacement reserves in which, you know, for things that come up. And so you're doing the math and take out contract. You're doing the math and that's, you know, about 300 plus 250 plus 300 is about 850 a door in call it repair costs. And I've bought 20 properties now, all between 200 and 500 units. I oversee all those and it's not even close. <laughs> and it's not, I mean, we're talking minimum double. Things come up that you can't budget for. And so, you know, when I see deals that are sent to me in which, you know, the operator's like, I know I can cut my repair and maintenance costs. I know I can cut my turnover costs and I'm budgeting 200 a door in replacements. No, you can't. Because no matter how good you are, appliances break. You got to replace carpet. You know, a boiler system built in the 70s, that's going to break. And so if I don't see at least 1500 per unit, you know, all in between repair and maintenance, turnover and replacements, unless they have it budgeted in a CapEx budget, which is perfectly fine. And we do sometimes as well. There's no way it's not going to hold up. And it works if the market's going really, really hot. You know, you hold a deal for two years and then all of a sudden you can sell it for a big profit. You're not going to realize all those, you know, replacements that you need to actually do. But like you mentioned, we're not in a bull market anymore. And if you have to hold a deal for five, seven years, which, you know, historically you have to to get the returns that you need for rents to increase, there's no way that's going to work. So that is number one for me, a big pain point, a big thing I look at. And honestly, with our company, it's taken until the last like really two to three years for us to underwrite deals that way. You, we used to underwrite deals exactly what I'm saying people do. And we got, I don't want to say lucky, but we were fortunate that, you know, after three years, all of a sudden a $40 million deal was worth 70 million because rents just grew organically very, very fast. And we won. But if we had to hold that deal seven years, no way. We wouldn't have the money. All our cash flow would have been, you know, gone from seven, eight, nine, ten percent to two, three percent because we'd have to spend that on on replacement. So um, that's number one. Number two, exit cap. Very simple. Uh, you can make deals look better or worse based on your exit cap. Buying a four and a half cap, you exit a four and a half cap. The IRR or the return, all the thin metrics that you said is going to jump. Rule of thumb: minimum five basis points, but it should be ten basis points increase in, in exit cap from going in cap based on how many years you hold the property. Very simple. Hold it five years, you buy it a four and a half gap. Exit should be really around five, but but anywhere over 4.8 to five, I, I can be okay with. Because the lower your exit, the returns are going to be juiced. And then lastly is organic rent growth that you're projecting going forward. Very challenging right now. Usually, you know, if people project with inflation, I'm cool with that. If they have a story for why they think rents are going to grow in a location more than others. For example, Lakewood, Colorado, we own four deals. They just passed a, a law last year in which you can only build 1% of current inventory. The population in that market is growing at 3.5%. Wow. So doing you know, basic math, supply is going to outweigh demand astronomically. So there, if you, if you project more rent growth, there's a story to it. I get it. But if you don't have a story to it and you're projecting 5% rent growth year one, and that's not including renovation, then I have a problem with it. During COVID right now, if you're projecting anything higher than zero, I would have a problem with it because it's just not realistic, at least in the markets that I invest in. So those are my three, like when I see a deal that someone sends to me, those are the first three things I look at in order to see, it, other than location, obviously, other than to see if 
if I'm interested or, or if they're kind of playing with numbers to make the deal work. Mm, okay. And they're all very important. And we're in a, a stage now compared to 2010 when we saw major cap rate compression over those years. And nobody could have really predicted that, but it made a lot of deals that might not have been that great look a lot better because folks rode that cap rate compression wave. How do you think about like debt and the impacts that that has on return? Like, like not just term and interest rate, but like prepayment penalties and all those other things that that factor into your net return. Is it? It's not in the top three, but how else does that play in? No, that's that's a great question and something that we've been playing with for a long time. And and, and so historically, our thesis was we want to hold real estate for seven to ten years. If you do, you will always win. You can ride out anything. Um, if you're low leverage and you have a long-term time horizon in which your debt is fixed, you're always going to win if you if you can be patient. Now, if you put on a fixed rate 10-year debt in 2015 on a $50 million deal and realize in 2018 it's worth 80, but the prepayment was $10 million, you were in trouble. Uh, not trouble, but but you weren't super happy. And so we did that. And we you know, had deals that we projected out to hold eight to 10 years. And all of a sudden we looked up in three years and our 10 year sales projection in price was lower than the actual three year price was going to be. That makes, wow. I'm saying that really weird, but just because as you mentioned, cap rate compression and rent growth were, you know, rent growth was astronomical. Cap rate compression was way faster than anyone could imagine. And so our values skyrocketed. Um, but because we had fixed rate debt, we had two choices, sell with an assumption or sell and prepay. And so we, most of the time, people wanted to take advantage of low interest rates. So we had to sell and prepay. Uh, and we lost a fair bit of money. The returns were still great. When you're buying a deal for 50 million, sell it for 80, you got a $10 million prepay, still $20 million of profit, which is fantastic. But I learned a hard lesson that if you have any inkling of, that you're going to maybe get out earlier than 10 years, you have to put on different types of debt. And, and the last, you know, five or six deals we've done, we put on floating rate debt, you know, still relatively safe because you buy caps at, you know, less than 150 basis points above your going in rate. So, and they're very cheap. All that does is tell you that the people that are selling the caps think that rates are going to be low for a long, long time. Um, if I'm buying a cap for $20,000, you know, for me, that's a no brainer, but you know, for them, I think they think they're stealing my money because rates are going to stay low. Um, but that's a different conversation. But, you know, to your point, if you have any inkling that you might want to get out early, you can't put on fixed rate debt because it's a huge detriment to the overall return. Yeah. And I think a lot of people today are looking at potential, you know, yield maintenance penalties. And since interest rates have fallen so considerably, seeing that their penalty is going to be enormous, like you you mentioned, a, a fairly substantial one. And, and, you know, we're there now. Anybody listening, if you don't know what that means, we've done interviews on that before. Reach out to me. It's complicated just to, <laughs> to tell you. It's not straight. It's complicated, but on a basic level, they want you to pay what you would have owed plus the difference between what. So if it's a 4% rate, this is not exact, but if it's a 4% rate and they're owed a certain amount of money for the next seven years, but rates are now two, they want you to pay what you owe plus the difference in what they're they're going to make, which is obviously less on a 2% note than a 4% note. So it's somewhere as the rates drop, your prepayment grows because what they can make now, 
but the next seven years is different, is lower than what they would have made with your loan. That's basically what, what on a high level, very nonsensical way. To, 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 you know, based to, on, uh, based on T bills of the same maturity and all those exactly. things. And those rates are incredibly low now. So it's, it, it can be bad news if you don't plan for it. So I definitely appreciate that. Now, I've looked at deals passively in the past where, okay, I, I check those boxes and say their cap rate projection is unreasonable. I think their debt plan is really good. I think they're they'll probably have good repair plans, things like that. But then I go to check their math, just run the numbers, punch it in Excel and see if I come up with the same IRR number. And the number I get is such a different number and a worse one. So what are your thoughts about passive investors just checking the numbers? I mean, do you see a lot of uh, folks making mistakes on that? I mean, that's a, I would always check the numbers. If, if I was a passive investor, I think it makes complete sense. Um, that's interesting that, you know, when I was passive investing, you know, before I was in the business, I never checked the numbers, which I probably should have. Uh, fortunately, I got lucky on timing. But that's interesting that you weren't getting to the same numbers that they were. Um, I wonder why that is. Um, but I definitely would say every passive investor, if they can, check the numbers. What their plan is to get that return, how risky that plan is to get the return. This is another thing we should discuss, obviously, but there's a difference between a 12 IRR when you're buying a relatively new deal that there's no renovations, no operational risk, and a 12 IRR where you're buying a 70s built deal that they have to renovate every unit, get $150 rent bumps in order to hit that return. Big difference. Um, one, they don't have to do anything. And the other, there's a lot of operational risk in order to get that return. So for me, that's another thing I, I probably should have mentioned earlier is that, you know, check the business plan and, you know, juice worth the squeeze essentially, meaning that is the risk both operationally and structurally with older buildings worth the projected return. And, you know, the older the deal, the more that they have to do to it, to the more intense the business plan is, the greater the return should be, in my opinion. Absolutely. I love the, love the way you put that. Now, another thing we haven't touched on here is the sponsor. We've talked about the deal, the numbers, those things. And, you know, you're, you yourself being a, a very experienced sponsor now, and you're probably four folks only going with experienced sponsors. But as far as passive investors, like evaluating their sponsors, what are your thoughts about that? Steps they should go through, thought process, things to look for. Yeah, I think there's a couple of different things that that should be vetted. And, it, you know, I'm not opposed to guys doing their first deal and investing with them. But, you know, what is their not necessarily even real estate track record, but business track record? What kind of, you know, not necessarily person are they, but what kind of hustle do they have? How much do they want this? How much of, are they putting up financially and personal and time wise, um, I think is crucial. Um, but you know, really real estate is such a relationship business. And so what kind of relationships do they have both in the market that they're investing in and with, you know, whoever is helping them run the deal? Because if it's your first deal, you know, you need some assistance from somebody and what does, does that person have at stake? Uh, if, you know, they have somebody on their team that's very experienced but doesn't have any money in the deal and is just helping, how motivated are they to actually help? For me, how much of their own personal money and time do they have at stake? And what is their relationship to that market, et cetera? And, and by that, I mean, you know, for me, we've bought a lot in Denver. 
you know, to the, at this point, I have relationships with, you know, almost every vendor out there, whether it's a painting guy, et cetera, you know, property management relationships, uh, municipality relationships, you know, just relationships with a lot of different people that, that benefit us uh, in the long term out in Denver. Whereas, you know, in other markets that we invest in, at first, I didn't have those relationships. And so it's it can be a tougher sell to an investor that, look, I'm, I'm investing here. Never, never really done a deal here, et cetera. So I think relationships in, in, in the market and kind of personal, I don't want to say, you know, personal, uh, what's the term? Uh, how much they have at stake, how much they have at stake in the deal personally, uh, is really, really important. Skin in the game, as they say. That's a, that's a great way to say it. Yeah. Perfect. All right, cool. Yeah. Super important. You know, it's great to have a good rundown of these things to look for in passive investments. And, and like we said already, it's a different time now in 2020 than it was in 2010 uh, when you got started and passive investors should have been careful in, in 2010, right? But it's even more important now because things are a lot different and the market is a lot tougher and we have a different time ahead of us than the last uh, mar- market cycle has been. Totally. I think right now, any any deal in which is presented as a, unless it's distress, which there is no distress right now yet um, in multifamily, but any deal that's presented as, hey, I can get in and raise rents 200 bucks in the next 18 months and get out is like a red flag right now. Because, you know, and the 20 deals I own, rents are dropping on for the most part uh, on almost every deal. Uh, and so, you know, for me, that business plan right now of getting in renovating units is, is a bit of a challenge because, you know, tenants do not, they, they want to save money, not spend because there's uncertainty out there occupationally for, for almost everybody, especially, you know, in the working class tenants that most of us, uh, have in our properties. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Josh, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Number one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Well, best investment I ever made was actually the first investment I ever did. And it's the best for multiple reasons. First reason was it was a complete home run. It was in Reno, Nevada. It was right before Tesla came in. And mind you, I knew nothing about what I was doing. I was a passive investor. But I invested $50,000 and got my money back in less than six months. And I still own the, we still own the deal today. And I'm making probably 10 grand a year on no money. I don't have any money in it. So that was the best <laughs> investment I ever did. But why it was even better is it got me hooked on the business. Um, that deal got me so in this business. I started, this is 2011. I listened to every book and podcast I could find while I was still playing ball. Without that deal, if that deal was just okay, maybe I would have been like, you know, real estate's fine, but you know, there's better ways. Uh, but that deal got me from a financial perspective and a actual life perspective. That was the best deal ever. Nice, nice. I love that. That's so that's so important. Getting started, and it's even better that the deal was a home run and even better that we get to say home run and you were an MLB player. So we're, we're just uh, doing a great <laughs> job here on the other side of that. We had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? 
So the worst investment I ever made, it's pretty simple and it wasn't a bad investment and, and we're not going to lose money off it. And I'm actually selling it right now. And it's, it's not great, but it was a mobile home park in, in Pennsylvania. And the reason why it's a bad investment is, well, it was cash flowing seven, 8%, which is great, but um, we're actually selling it for a break even basically. So it's going to be a little under a seven IRR um, over four years, which is not great. And it's all based on cash flow. And big lessons I learned from that. And reason number one why why we bought it is we wanted to get into that business, and we needed to figure out. It was the first deal we won uh, in that business, and it kind of was, and it was a large deal. It was three prop parks, um, and it was kind of our foray into hey, we're buying these things now. Brokers, sellers, we're real. We own a park. Why it was a bad investment was three different reasons. One was location. It is not in a good location. Population is declining, has been declining for the last 50 years. Um, it's in Scranton for whatever it's worth. Uh, and it's just, it's not somewhere that you would want to invest. Deal number two, reason number two is something I've learned later in my, or recently in my career is if you have a properties that are desirable, both location and appearance, et cetera, even if you overpay up front, there's always going to be people that want to own that property in the long term. And so it creates a bidding war at the end. You know, we are begging people to buy these things um, right now because it's just not desirable. Uh, and so I learned a lesson, you know, overpay if you have to for quality assets and quality locations, but don't stretch one ounce for mediocre deals in bad locations or don't even buy those, you know, but if you're going to stretch it all, make sure it is for quality properties quality locations. And lastly, why it was a bad investment is there's been five shootings at one of them. It's just been been really, really challenging. And so, you know, we're not going to lose money. We made some money. You live and you learn. But that was my worst investment. And it's very simple. It's location, location, location. And this is not a location you want to invest in. Wow. Ouch. I, I originally from Pennsylvania, grew up there in a more slightly more populated area, but still kind of I did not know that. And, you know where I'm talking about? Scranton. Oh, I know Scranton. No, yeah, I didn't grow up near Scranton, but I'm aware of it. And most of rural Pennsylvania is declining. I mean, the, yep. the steel and coal business is declining. The steel mill that both of my grandfathers worked at is kind of gone. It's still there, but it's it's not supporting the town anymore. And I think that's the story of much of Pennsylvania, unfortunately. Totally. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Well, my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? Very simple. Relationships are everything, especially in our business. You get things done with relationships and genuine relationships, not really surface area relationships where you just, you know, are trying to use someone or whatever. It's, it's truly building real relationships with other owners of real estate, brokers in our business, lenders, investors. I mean, our business is a relationship business and, you know, I pride myself on trying to be genuine and, and, and try to really build true relationships. And, and it's interesting because I didn't realize this at the time, but a lot of these relationships that I wanted to build for, you know, the benefit of business, I've turned into real friendships that uh, are some of my like closest friends now in which, you know, they own a bunch of deals. I own a bunch of deals and we'll all buy and sell from each other over time. But, you know, besides that, we, our families get together, our kids get together, et cetera. So uh, for me, if there's one lesson to be learned and it's, it's relationships are, are the most crucial part of our business 
because anyone can learn how to underwrite deals. Anyone can learn how to figure out if a location is growing, you know, go to the census or go to Wikipedia even, but not everyone can build relationships in order to win deals and make deals happen. And so for me, that's, if I learned anything in the five years I've been in this business, that's number one. Nice. I love it. Josh, thanks so much for everything today. If folks want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about your business, where can they find you? Yeah, you can email me, josh at geltinc.com, J-O-S-H at G-E-L-T-I-N-C.com. Love talking real estate, as I'm sure you can see. So uh, shoot me a note and uh, we'd love to get in touch. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated and it helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thanks for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.